This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Leadership in Action. Welcome back, everybody. This is Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm uh, your host right now, Mike Yuseem, and I'm on the faculty here at the Wharton School, and I work with the Leadership Center uh, at the Wharton School. Anne Greenhall is in the studio with me, my friend, my colleague, my co-host, and she is the Deputy Director of our McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm really pleased now to bring on our second guest for this evening, Patty McCord. Uh, Patty uh, is the author of a new book, a great book called Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. I think we all want that. (laughs) So uh, in any case, Patty, welcome to our program. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, Patty, really great to have you here. And I was saying just before you came on that uh, you spent a good bit of time with Netflix as the chief talent officer. And why don't we begin with uh, just a couple kind of just straight-up questions about Netflix. Most people know a lot about Netflix. I think Ann and I are among your customers. Uh, But some may not know a whole lot of details. So help us appreciate what Netflix provides, what it was doing, let's make it five or ten years ago, and how it got to where it is now. Well, I often say that I'm a serial entrepreneur, and one of the things I loved about the 14 years I spent at Netflix was I got three different startups. So mm-hmm. the first one was, could we come up with a business model where we thought we might actually make money before we ran out of money? And that took a, that took a couple radical. of years. <laughs> yeah, it was radical, huh? And um, because we, we most people don't know that we originally rented DVDs with due dates and late fees, just like Blockbuster. Yeah. And so the original sort of idea that was crazy at the time was to have a subscription service for the DVD by mail business. So that took us a while to kind of figure that out and get that going. And then the next four years were kind of about creating that business. And, you know, it seems quaint now in retrospect, but, you know, we beat Blockbuster. (laughs) And, you know, when we were a little bitty startup, Blockbuster was 150 times bigger than we were. It was, you know, really, really scary to even take on a corporation with that big of a global reach. So that was sort of my second startup at Netflix. And then my third startup at Netflix was about building out the technology around streaming video and streaming video into devices and into mobile devices and then burgeoning into, you know, getting great content and then starting to experiment with original content. So I left the company right around House of Cards. Hmm. You know, I can and nowadays, okay. you know, we can mark the time at Netflix like, remember House of Cards? That was in totally... eight, right? You know, twelve. And Patty, so, that's actually um, a significant reference because you also now are a film or Netflix is a film producer along with streaming and everything and, else. Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, it has for me personally come full circle. So part of the reason I read talked me into joining the company because I thought it was the most ridiculous idea anybody ever had was that I'm kind of an independent film buff. And I thought, (laughs) you know, someday, someday if we make it, then we can make movies outside of Hollywood blockbusters. And now when I look at Netflix, you know, from outside, I'm like, oh, hell, we're going to make Hollywood blockbusters. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, wow. We we love how... And a lot of... Really interesting, independent. You know, when when Orange is the New Black came out, I thought, oh, you know, this is so wonderful. This is the kind of content that I always dreamed of seeing on our service, and now the service is making it. Totally, So those are sort of the phases of Netflix, and the part that I I was at was from the very early stage startup until the beginning of original programming. And the, the Netflix, the company now, is a global original content producer. Uh, totally. So it's it's now at, you know, startup number four. <laughs> oh, wow. Yep, yep. Pat, I've got a yeah. question before we really get going here about your title when you were there, Chief yeah. Talent Officer. That's intriguing. I bet you had all the fun. So what does a Chief Talent Officer do? You know, it started out as kind of a, a little bit of a joke because we were talking about 
the metaphors of Hollywood, right? And so, it, and Reed said, Reed made it up for me, and he said, you know, you really are, you're in, you're charged with creating like the pipeline and the ability to get and attract really great talent into the organization. But over time, it evolved into creating. My job was to help create sort of the infrastructure and the operations around making sure that groups of really highly talented people could do their best work hmm. for the particular product that we were making. So I actually really like it because I'm not a big fan of human resources because I don't think humans are resources. But I do think that for every organization, there's a very particular group of talented people that make that very particular company successful. Great point. Great point. By the way, listeners, why don't you join our conversation? If you've got a question um, along the line of uh, how does let, uh, Netflix work, what's the chief talent officer, uh, and four or five other issues we're about to get into, you can reach us, call in, we'll put you on the air, 844 844- Nine four two seven eight six six. Here's a mnemonic: eight four four Wharton. W H A R T O N. Patty, back to you with one more question for me, and then we're going to turn to my colleague Ann, who's in the studio with me right here. Um, on well, in many business school classes now, the comparison, invidious it is, between Blockbuster's demise and Netflix's amazing. Survival and now dominance of uh, of uh, home original content. Uh, to what extent, given the fact that you were the chief talent officer, was it a story at Netflix of bringing in exceptional people and just giving them a lot of latitude to kind of invent the future, or was there something else going on? I, it was that that certainly contributed and still contributes to the success of the company. But it was more about um, really as much as we could clarity about what we were trying to achieve for our customers. And so, you know, we were uh, an early Internet company. And one of the beautiful things about an Internet company is that you have this visceral connection with the people who consume your product and you can in some ways real time you know understand how they do it the other thing is that all of us were customers as well and so there's something about making something that for your mom right or Mm -hmm. your neighbor or a stranger that gives you a sense of ownership that's really different so it's the combination of, of incredible clarity about what we needed to get done, what was really important for the customer, how, what success looked like, and finding the exact right talent to do those things at the right time. So it's not just the land of A players. I'm air quoting yep. here, right? Like, you know, Netflix only hired the A players. People ask me sometimes, like, how did you do that? And I, I facetiously say, well, there's an island that has only A players and only <laughs> I know where it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so like and I and I spend a lot of time with alumni now and I think about the people who, you know, at different stages of the company were the A player for the company at that time and they have moved on to have incredible careers at other companies somewhere else. So it's it's that matchmaking that's really critical, not just the A player, not just the A strategy. Patty, it's really a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. And I'm I'm wondering what prepared you to become chief talent officer. <laughs> well, it was more about uh, all the all the preparation I had to become a head of HR, and then all of my time at Netflix was dismantling everything I knew. Oh wow! So, um, mostly, what prepared me was being surrounded by innovators and people who created products. And so because we were creating something that was very consumer focused, we tested things a lot. And, you know, here's the deal. Innovators, people who invent amazing stuff, they never say, well, let's do this really well. Let's copy what everybody else is doing and call it best practices. Mm -hmm. They would never do that, right? They say, Wow, what are we trying to achieve here? What are we trying? What experience are we trying to get? You know, what's? Let I'll give you an HR example. I believe I have a hypothesis that if you give employees feedback, they'll perform better. 
makes sense, right? Okay, so I want to create a system that makes sure that that happens. I know I'll do it once a year looking back. I'll call it the annual performance review. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? You know, and if you thought about that like an inventor, an innovator, you'd be like, well, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so I learned most of it from them. Oh, very good. Right? And, and I looked around and said, you know, how come these guys are having all the fun? right and then I started thinking critically about the things that I took for granted that most of us take for granted in management and I started thinking is that really necessary and does it achieve what we set out to achieve and is that the best that we can do oh that's great so Patty if I can probe a little more you said that you that you came in with all of the uh experience credentials to be head of HR and then you went about dismantling and essentially undoing or unlearning uh, Mm -hmm. what you knew. So was Mm -hmm. that by way of formal education or previous work? What what gave you that knowledge that you then dismantled? Well, if you go all the way back in my career, I started as a recruiter. So that gives me Ah. a little bit different mindset, right? Right. So my forte was matching people with their jobs, right? And the thing about starting with a as a recruiter, here's like a secret. Oh, good. As a as a recruiter, you don't really care when somebody leaves. Right. You don't get all upset about it because like, oh, great, yeah. <laughs> they're gone. So now here's an opportunity to find, you know, another amazing person to do this work. I know there's somebody great out there. So you know that in your heart. So you don't spend a lot of time saying, got to keep them, got to keep them, you know, retention, retention, retention. So it's just a different you know, way of thinking. So that's kind of where my deep roots are. Yeah. Uh, and the second part is, Because we were inventing something completely different, I knew that, let's take the Blockbuster one, even though that's ancient history. The secret to beating Blockbuster was to move faster and more cleverly than they could. Mm -hmm. That, That was the secret. And so I knew that if I adopted all of the rules and processes and procedures in a large corporation the way everybody else worked, it would slow us down. Right. 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 So then I had to say, okay, then I have to take every single process and every single policy and every single approval level and say, is it necessary? And could I replace a a policy or an approval with hiring a really smart person who's an adult who thinks company first, customer Mm. first, and just let them use good judgment? Mm, Very good. It was was a grand experiment. I got to tell you, it was very scary. Well, you're reminding me, Mike, uh, you seem, and Jeff Klein and I had the pleasure of interviewing Barry Schwartz, if I'm recalling, right, who made a um, faculty member, uh, who made a wonderful, wonderful comment about the difference between rules and guidelines (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the value of giving people some guidelines or some Hmm. bumpers, um, but giving them the latitude to make decisions, (laughs) And you've essentially said this, you know, to treat them like adults. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And there are things that we do. I'll introduce another word that I love. I love the word discipline. Mm. Um, There are other things that we do as teams that require us to sort of set uh, expectations from each other. The discipline of saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. Here's the time frame we're going to do it. Here's what excellence looks like. What can, I, what can we expect each other in ter- from each other in terms of delivery? Mm. And that when that commitment is made, right, I've been thoughtful about what to commit to. I've been thoughtful about the timeline. I'm going to put together an amazing te- team that can accomplish that. When you mm. have the discipline of knowing that the people around you are doing that, then you can work pretty independently. Mm-hmm. Because because I know when that date comes up that you said you were going to deliver to me, that you always do, I don't have to spend any time worrying about whether or not you will. Yeah. Patty, I'm going to break in just a second and remind our listeners that we are talking with you. Uh, this program is Leadership in Action. We're business radio powered by the Wharton School. 
And we are in dialogue with Patty McCord, author of Powerful Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. I'm Mike Husseem, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Anne Greenhall. And Patty, just to back up a little bit in uh, referencing, as you did along the way, uh, the chief executive, Reed Hastings, uh, co-founder, uh, and as I recall, Netflix goes back about 10 years now. I think you got going something like 20. Nine, 20 years. Let's make it 20 years. 20, 1997. 97. Mm. So, um, mm-hmm. and just uh, if you could, since Reed has been at the center of this uh, for a long time now, give us a couple descriptors of how he worked, how he led, how he innovated, and how he brought Netflix, along with a lot of people like you, to where it is today. Um, he he's an engineer by training, so uh, I learned the word discipline from him. Hmm. Right there's a there's a misnomer about engineers that they're these flaky guys who hate rules and you know they don't want anybody like you know holding them down. And the truth is, engineering is a very disciplined um, a, a, you know thing to do. Right there, code is written in languages. Right. There's a lot of structure around it. And what they hate is senseless bureaucracy and (laughs) stupid process. Right. And so because they're very spotty and and logical, (laughs) you know, when Reed would say to me, now help me understand why we do this. And I and he would not accept, well, everybody else does as an answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember explaining to him one time something around stock options. I was I was explaining RSUs. And he said, um, well, who does this? And I said, well, everybody. And he said, why? And I said, well, because Google does it. Mm-hmm. He said, well, what did we do before Google? And I said, whatever Microsoft did. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but... and, and, he, and, you know, he would just look me in the eye and say, well, that doesn't make any sense, Patty. And so he was always challenging me to go back and say, why? Right? He never, ever, and still doesn't take for granted, well, that's the way it's done. And he is a very visionary leader, so he's always, you know, driving into the future. He's not very nostalgic, Mm. you know. Um, People say, do you think he misses you? I'm like, no, I don't think he thinks about me at all. (laughs) And I'm I'm completely okay with that, Right. Because why, why should he be thinking about me? He should be thinking about the company that he's building, this global you know, streaming service. It's a whole different business there now. Patty, so a question. That's a, just that's a quick question. That's the unique thing about him. Yeah. A quick question along that line. I, it is sort of a, a race to the finish line in, in, in the world that you were part of there in Silicon Valley. Sometimes the first mover, certainly mm-hmm. the second mover at most, uh, if they can get out, think about Amazon getting to where it got because it was the first mover. Mm-hmm makes a huge difference. And so what uh, explains why Reed Hastings and you and others were able to appreciate that streaming was coming before others did so? Mm. I think it's focus. I I don't think we were the only ones that saw it coming. I I think, you know, because in the technical world, there are always being something coming. It's, It's a matter of whether or not what it is is a business that's viable. Right. So, I mean, one of the things we used to talk about was, you know, choose a product, choose a future whose um, actual ability to to manifest itself is as big as your ambition. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, the idea that we could take on Blockbuster was, you know, spectacular at the time. But every time you reach one of those milestones, then you reach a little bit farther. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know that the first mover advantage myth is real, because hmm. having been in the Silicon Valley as long as I have, very often there's four or five of us who are first movers. We're all moving together. It's just one horse like gets out of the path. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and Patty, maybe to put my more academic framing on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a first mover means you 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 do get into the game more quickly than others. And it probably means you've got a, a reasonable strategy given what's changing. But I think we've come to appreciate that the ability to, here's a business phrase, to execute around it is ultimately one of the most important differences. So you got an idea, you see the world's changing, I, and then you got to deliver. 
Yes, and I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why I like to think about it and talk about it as phases of organizational growth. Hmm. And so the first, you know, the the myth you were talking about or the the uh, premise that we come to is first mover advantage startups, you know, are a really cool place to be. But they are if the idea has legs. And then if the idea has a customer base and has the potential to grow and to make money, and then you go from this scrambling early stage, get hard work done company to companies that, a company that now has issues of scale or complexity. And once you bump into the scale and complexity, you know, era of your company, then it's a whole different organization. It may be very different types of people. It's a different kind of structure. The communication system has to scale, become more scalable and more complex. And then, you know, a next phase might be either a multiple product line or maybe multiple countries, you know, then goes into international. And that's another phase. So I don't think that company growth and success is linear at all. Hmm. I I see it more step functionally, right? Hmm. It's like, okay, you got, now you have something. You know, I, I consult with a lot of those companies. It's like, okay, you know, you're going to make it right. That public company is in your horizon. Are you ready for that? So Patty, just, just to follow up, you know, you mentioned that you, your, some formative experience was as a recruiter and you really learn to appreciate the importance of matching talent to the work. And now mm-hmm. you've walked through these various stages of company growth. Can you speak to uh, particular talent uh, in relationship to those stages? Well, let's, let's take um, public company versus private company, okay. for example. Right? In a private company... Because you may be working on a shoestring, the complexities of finance and business modeling may or may not be relevant because it really is just sort of how quickly can we get to market, how quickly can we get paying customers, how quickly can we either get, you know, uh, ubiquity in terms of brand ubiquity or revenue or or both, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you have both and you're a public entity, then let's an, an example is your rhythm of communication changes to quarterly mm. because you're now responding to shareholders and earnings, right? And so the the pace, right, changes a little bit to like what do we, how do we think about what we're going to report when we're reporting to shareholders quarterly? So you have that rhythm. You also have complexity in your organization around let's take the finance organization, which says. Okay, if we go this way, how do we model that business and how does that work out? So there's an additional complexity around projection and Mm -hmm. around sophisticated, much more sophisticated looks at what are the finances of the organization, how does that change, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are different entities within the organization that need different skill levels at different times. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as a public company, when you become an international company or a multi-product company or multi-division company, I just was at um, X the other day. It's called now, they don't like it to say Google X. Mm -hmm. It's a company that is part of the Alphabet company. And it was really fun to see, you know, what was a huge company now having the independent Alphabet companies you know, finding their own identity mm-hmm. within the, the umbrella that is Google, right? So they're like decomplexing in some ways, mm. right? Yeah. From this, this huge organization to like these, these different companies inside of the organization that function somewhat independently. Very good. And I, through the course of our conversation, my sense is that we've, we've touched on at least two of your chapters in your book, Powerful, and the first uh, is about treating people as if they are adults, <laughs> as if they're mm-hmm. adults, as adults. Mm-hmm. And the second one is that so important, and you've underscored this, the importance of clear, constant communication about the challenge. So, for example, wherever you are in the stage of, of, uh, of your business. So I'd just like to ask you to comment on your third chapter, 
when practicing radical honesty and you add humans do not like being lied to and being spun. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty, this is sort of the most important message I want people to hear, which is if you have an, if you have adults, you can tell them the truth. So here's an example. I was at a conference in Austin the other day, and the coach of the San Jose, San Antonio Spurs was there, professional basketball team. And someone in the audience said, oh, it just must feel really terrible when you get these young players and, you know, they, they do, you work on them and you develop them and they do a really great job and eventually you have to say goodbye. Doesn't that feel horrible? And he said, no, it's a basketball team. <laughs> You know, they get it. Like they, mm. didn't, they didn't think they were joining for life. They knew that they were joining for the time. That nobody has an expectation that they're going to be playing professional basketball. It's just, mm. like, it's just not. And I remember standing in the audience thinking, gosh, I wish we could just be that truthful with people. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I wish we could just say, you know that you're not going to be here forever. So let's just, let's just both debunk that myth. Right. So let's figure out a way that during the time that we're together, that you do incredible work that you're really proud of, that makes you a more valuable employee for the next place that you for sure will work. Oh, very good. Thank you. Patty, great example. And we're going to hold that and come back to it in just a couple of minutes. We need to take a bit of a break here. Uh, okay. stay, stay tuned, everybody. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm with Ann Greenhall. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking Uh, with Patty McCord about her book and the fact that she worked on what Netflix calls what she called the culture deck. Very important. We'll be talking about that in just a couple minutes. Stick around. We're the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. We've got more time with uh, Patty McCord right after the break. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. That is us, Sirius XM's <laughs> business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm with Ann Greenhall, my uh, co-host here. Uh, we're talking with Patty McCord, a former Netflix executive and author of a great book, Powerful, subtitled Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. And uh, Patty, great to be back in dialogue with you. And I want to focus now, as I mentioned just before our break there, that you helped create what's called the Netflix Culture Deck. And just to offer up a comment on it, and then we really want to know a lot more about it, Sheryl Sandberg, who's the uh, number two person, of course, at Facebook, has said, I'm going to quote her, it may be the most important document ever to come out of Silicon Valley. So with that, uh, yeah. Patty, we want to know what that's all about. The Culture Isn't Deck. Isn't that incredible praise? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's <laughs> great. When they said that. Okay, a couple of a couple of misnomers about the Netflix culture deck. I didn't write it, and I didn't write it with Reed. We wrote it collectively with um, members of the management team over ten years. Whoa! Hmm. So uh, we wrote it as a way to just write down. Uh, it was an onboarding document, hmm. and Reed and I would meet with uh, every the, every ten people when they got hired. We'd get in a room. And we'd talk about it, and we'd say, you know, this is what we expect from each other. It was kind of your crib sheet. Like, hmm. this is what you should expect from management. This is what you should expect from each other. You should feel free to call each other on behavior that doesn't line up with this or anything that we do. And so uh, and we ju- so we wrote uh, the first chapter, which is sort of the behaviors we value maybe six times mm-hmm. in the 14 years I was there. Uh, and the, and if you go to the Netflix website now, the jobs page, you'll see that hmm. they've rewritten it last year again, another time. So what we did was, the reason I'm telling you that is that creating the culture was not about writing the deck. Mm-hmm. Creating the culture was about writing down what we committed to do, the way we actually work. So this is a true story. Reed and I are driving to work one day, and he said to me, hey, I met this woman who's got this really cool new startup, and she's going to put uh, PowerPoint presentations online. And I said, that is such a great idea. I wonder what people are going to put out there. And he said, well, I put the culture deck out this morning. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I said, what? And he goes, 
why are you upset about it? I'm like, oh, Reed, that's, it's just, you know, it's graphically just hideous. <laughs> and secondly, you're going to scare off all our candidates. <laughs> and he said, and he said, only the ones we don't want. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, because it was so edgy. And I have to tell you that the next day interviewing changed for us hmm. because because some of the things so the the Netflix culture deck is perceived to be this bold and innovative document, and it's really not. It's just about the truth, right? So it's very logical and it's very truthful. Patty, give and us a lot a, of if you give us uh, a couple samples of what's in there. Oh, you know, the, the edgiest one that everybody quotes is adequate performance gets, gets a generous severance package. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it was the ability to say, you know what, you've done, and you're amazing, you've done an incredible job. We hired you to build this thing, and in the last six years you've done it, and it works great, and it, we could not be here without you. But we don't need to do that again. And and the business is changing directions. You know what? We're not going to put you on a performance improvement plan because you're an extraordinarily high performer. So we just don't need it anymore. (laughs) Okay. Mm. That's that's direct. That's that's back to radical honesty, right? And Anne can say, wow, that's a little harsh, Patty, which you might say. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but we're both grownups. And just imagine what you're going to, how you're going to leverage this in your next next company. Patty, here's the hard part, if I can build on what you've just said. Uh, Every company I've ever walked in the front door of has something that they would call a um, um, kind of behavioral norms or good guidelines for, for good performance at the company. But uh, many companies, I do learn, uh, have uh, that document. Uh, They sometimes Mm -hmm. get put on eBay in mint condition because nobody's ever looked at them. And Mm -hmm. with that said, how did you bring this code, this deck, to life? So it's on the web. It's probably on your desk. And then take take it up from there. How do you help everybody really take this to heart? We built – so the reason I tell you we wrote it over 10 years was every chapter is built on the chapter before. So when we wrote the chapter about high performance and, and, you know, adults, and we said that's who we want to be. We want to be adults who are really matched with the work that we need them to do and that they have the skills to do their work and they're passionate about doing it. That took me about four years to actually create the structure around that to make it so. I'd have a great recruiting team so that if somebody said goodbye or we said goodbye to somebody, we'd get another terrific candidate. And my recruiting team had to be focused on the talent we needed for the future, not the talent to fill the open positions we had today. Mm. It's a different mindset, right? So that means you never stop recruiting, ever, all the time, right? You're looking for talent. So that I had to build that team. I had to rethink, well, in the example I just gave you, how should I think about performance improvement plans or severance packages in that scenario? Mm-hmm. Instead of putting you on a 90-day performance improvement plan, why didn't I just give you a 90-day severance and we start thinking about where you're going to work next? <laughs> right? And just have those honest conversations. So that just really like the the actualizing the things that we said was really hard work. Mm. If we no longer said you have to go to finance to get approval to spend the money, then I had to change the people in finance whose job it was to say no most (laughs) of the time to people who sat in the organization with the other people and said, you know what, we budgeted for $10,000 per individual per spend, and we're, our run rate's eleven five. So what's up with that? <laughs> Should we rethink about the budget? Right. And, and that you hear the difference in that conversation? That's not, um, have you realized you've gone over budget by $1,100? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's a different dialogue. So that's how we did it. It was very incrementally. Um, It was thinking about if we do it different, should we experiment with doing something different? And a lot of what was in the deck was experiment. (laughs) I mean, I remember standing up in front of people saying, hey, we're thinking that the time off policy is really unnecessary. 
we don't track when you show up. You know, you don't clock in and clock out. And so I don't know why people in my organization should give you permission to take time off. And, oh, by the way, the named holidays that we all name are typically holidays that are bank holidays. And we have so many people from so many different cultures that's like, that don't celebrate Christmas, for example, right? So why don't we manage time locally? And I would say to them, this is a crazy experiment, and it may not work. And if it doesn't work, we'll do what everybody else does. We'll call it best practices. Patty, let me jump in here because you've got me really interested in this notion, and I like it, of an iterative process in which you are mm-hmm. creating, mm-hmm. not not dictating, but creating the culture, co-creating it, in fact. Yes. Can you give an example? Can you give an example of one of those experiments where you had good intentions to create certain uh, influence and direct people, guide them in particular directions, but it backfired? You know, I'll give you the one, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdotal story about the time off thing. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> it, what, it, I remember interviewing an engineer who is from Apple. And he said to me in the interview, I have to tell you that I'm kind of a workaholic. And I said, okay, thanks for sharing. And he said, but, you know, I recently got married. I said, congratulations. And and we're expecting our first child. Again, congratulations. And so I'm concerned that without a time off policy, and I looked at him, I said, that you won't be a good parent? Mm. (laughs) And he goes, well, you know, and I said, you know, that really... it's wonderful that you care about that, but it's really not our business, right, to make you a good parent, right? That's And do you, are you telling me that you need more structure around it so mm. that you'll be reminded to go home at night, right, mm. and, and put the time you need in for your family? And he said, well, maybe. And I'm like, then you should stay at Apple. It's a terrific company. Right, right, right. right? This may not be the right time and place for you to be in an organization that doesn't have a lot of boundaries around that. Oh, I think that's a great illustration. But now that's an illustration of where it backfired for the individual. How about one where it backfired for you? It was mostly around having people who couldn't actualize the behavior. Okay. So, for example. uh, So people would... Uh, join with the idea that they really loved the freedom and responsibility. And so one of two things would happen. They would either really love the freedom, but not the responsibility <laughs> and the accountability, right? <laughs> okay. and, and they would and they would default back to, you know, it was his fault. It was their problem. They didn't deliver, blah, blah, blah. You know, they didn't give me what I need. And I'm like, it's your job to get it done. You know, you got to talk them into giving you what you need. Look, that's not, this is what we hired you to do. So sometimes that was very difficult for people. And sometimes um, it was about when we would move fast and people would want to be, take it slower and be more responsible and have more authority. Hmm. So the idea of the top down management, you know, where, um, information more the information concentrates at the top of the organization that was really hard for a lot of people to adapt to and very difficult for us to um, figure out how to scale as we got bigger mm. patty i'm going right? to break so in that, one i'm going to break in once again just to make certain our listeners know what they have tuned into we are leadership in action uh, part of uh, business radio uh, coming from the Wharton school i'm mike Useem. i'm here with ann greenhall and we are speaking with Patty McCord, a former Netflix executive and author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. And Patty, picking up on the book and the last two chapters in particular, I'm intrigued by their titles. <laughs> wonder if you can offer a couple thoughts about each. Second to last chapter is Pay People What They're Worth to You, with you italicized. And then the very last chapter is The Art of Good goodbyes. So let's go back to paying people what they're worth to you. What what do you mean by that? I mean that uh, over the many, many years I've looked at compensation, I realized that our complex and convoluted compensation systems sometimes get in the way of A, paying people fairly, Hmm. and B, um, really assessing the difference between what's what 
if you're going to pay top of the market for the most critical skills in your company, the most important thing to figure out is what are those critical skills. Mm -hmm. And so when we aim to the middle with most of our traditional compensation systems, you know, we're going to mark to market in the 65th percentile. You know, I say to people Mm -hmm. sometimes, so I'm not sure it's going to be reasonable to say we only hire the best, we only hire the best people, we only hire A players in every role and 65th percentile in the same sentence. Yep. Because because those mm-hmm. people, especially if it's scare, a scarce skill, command more than the 65th mm-hmm. percentile. And furthermore, no one in the world knows what the 65th percentile <laughs> is, except other HR people, yep. right? And, and let's dive deeper into compensation. And that, by the way, that percentile is usually based on um, survey data that, you know, that compensation departments use by gathering surveys and determining what salary ranges are and midpoints and all of that stuff that they don't share with anybody. Right. (laughs) It's completely black box. So the employee is supposed to believe that you're going to treat them fairly because you use data that they can't see. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And the truth is, partly because I'm here in the Silicon Valley and because talent ebbs and flows and supply and demand ebbs and flows, that the truth is for many, many, many jobs, it's marked to market. Hmm. So, so, Patty, may, to, maybe just one yeah. follow-up, if I may. Um, mm-hmm. When you say pay people what they're worth, um, I'm thinking you don't mean pay for performance. I don't mean pay for effort. And how about mm-hmm. performance? Yeah. What's demonstrated? Different. If performance is measured in results, then I'm 100% there. Right. And so it's not and what it becomes, I think, with the annual performance review that's paid for performance, that's looking back in arrears at what you did last year, we tend to we tend to reward the people that work hard. Right. And so what we really want to reward is the people who have outstanding results who get incredible amounts of work done on time with quality Mm -hmm. to serve the customer. Right. That's it. And so I think that shifting the focus to results, you know, shifts the management's responsibility into being able to very clearly articulate those Right, right. Right. So that's where, you know, shifting all that. And I want to add a sidebar here that I think is really important. I when I talk to women a lot, I say women's organizations or HR groups, I say, what are the three most female-dominated departments in any company? Sales and marketing, HR, and finance. We can't fix pay. Hmm. We, all, yep. we own equal pay, right? And so when, women, when you come into a firm and you're paid below market and your, your, pay, your, next, your job offer is based on a percentage increase above what you're currently making, and you jump into that complex compensation system with a 6.5% merit increase budget and a bell curve distribution <laughs> and job levels, right, you will never catch up. This system keeps you there, right? And so that's – and I, I really honestly – that was like after I kind of came out and I was going back and looking at pay systems, I thought – oh, my God, you know, the only way women are going to get equal pay is to walk. <laughs> Very good. So, uh, Patty, <laughs> really? Because yeah. you're there to sit there and you're going to notice? You're not going to notice. The system doesn't reward noticing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Patty, I'm going to break in because mm-hmm. I do want to reference the title of your last yes. chapter again, mm-hmm. The Art of Good Goodbyes. And right. since good we're, goodbye. We've got two minutes to go, and so we're almost saying goodbye. So what, what's the art oh, of a good goodbye? Let's do a good goodbye. The good goodbye um, keeps your dignity and it, and doesn't surprise you. That's all. That's the, that's the essence of the good goodbye. And you know how you do good goodbyes? You practice them, <laughs> right? You you the first part of a good goodbye, the very first sentence of a good goodbye is thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank thank you for what you've done here. Because if you are a manager and you've kept an incompetent, not performing person for five years and you're mad at them, that is not their fault. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Right? 
So, you know, that's, that's get at the old mirror. So the good goodbye is thank you for everything that you've done, that you're not surprised, right, that we've had lots of conversations before this. You know, I had somebody I said goodbye to once. I'm like, how did it go with your manager? And he said, oh, man, you know, he gave me so much rope I hung myself. <laughs> oh, that's good. Very good. That's great. So, so that is it. I, and it's about honesty and straightforwardness. If your business is taking a left turn, and you're going to hire a bunch of people that are a completely different skill set. Then the first people you want to tell are the people that you have who aren't going to be those people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Patty, with 60 right. seconds to go, I've got a final close-off question, which is more okay. than a goodbye. It's a, it's a big question, but just 60 seconds on it. Um, thinking about your career and what got you to Netflix and Silicon Valley, if somebody is hearing this, thinking about you, maybe reading your book, and they kind of want to be on a similar course, they want to work for a, a tech company in the Valley, what's just one piece of advice for you, from you for them on how to, how to make that happen? It's pretty straightforward. Here's my career advice for everybody. A, you know, network a lot. Social networking has given us the ability to be connected to hundreds, thousands of people. And when you're connected to those people, it's not what you know or who you know. It's who knows what you know. Hmm. Right? So spend time with other people being curious about how they got there. People love to talk about themselves. <laughs> All right? So if there's somebody that you admire or someone that you, you're interested in, then reach out to them and spend some time with them. And so now they know what you know. So, for example, if there's a company that you're interested in, if not, there's not a perfect job for you on their website, get to know someone else that works there and tell them about what you know. So that this is how things really happen in companies. Man, we really we got this new project, and we need some. We need somebody with this really. Remember that woman we met last summer? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. She would be perfect. Hmm. So that's. It's not what you know or who you know. It's who knows what you. Know. All right, Patty. That is a very good it goodbye. Is great. I want to thank you for joining. Yes. That was yeah. an excellent goodbye. I want to thank you for joining the show. Uh, people can find out more about you, I think, just by uh, searching the web. Do you have a particular website you'd like to single out for people that want to know you, about your work? You can, you can go to mine, com. It's pretty and, straight and up. That'll do it. All right, Patty, thank you for yeah, joining thank us. Thank you, Patty. You bet. Thanks for having me, you guys. This is fun. Uh, it's been great talking with you. And now, Anne, we oh. need to kind of sum up and pull out a few strands, our after-action review. Oh, boy. So we've got our two great guests, Nicole Bernard-Dawes mm-hmm. of Lake July Snacks and Patty McCord of Netflix and a new book called Powerful. What, what are your thoughts? Mm, boy. Well, first, I, I just have to say I love um, Patty's, Patty's play on it's not who you know or yeah. what you know. But it's who knows yeah. what you know. I'm writing that down and sharing that with my students and children. <laughs> I've got that on my little sheet here as well. <laughs> oh, do you? Don't Very forget good. that one. Very good. And, a- and, and Mike, so you chime in. How about what else? Well, let's see. Maybe taking it from the top, going back all the way to Nicole Bernard-Dawes, mm-hmm. uh, she did make a point, a great point. Never thought about it before. But if you're a startup, you're getting going, you want great mentors, but you also want great investors. Mm-hmm. And she helped us understand what that meant. You want people not only with money to put into you, but who will pay attention to you as well. And then secondly, she offered up um, a, a thought about what what it means to be or to become a general manager as she is. Uh, we have particular functional skills that we start with, but you really got to get familiar with everything. And she yeah. had a wonderful illustration of how that happened after her father passed away, who was mm-hmm. in sales, and all of a sudden she had to learn sales. So anyway, yeah. what, what would you like to add yeah. on, uh, Nicole? Oh, I would just add that she encouraged us to go for what it is that we don't know. You know, So for example, her father was in sales. She didn't worry about it, didn't need to know about it. She'd never been on a sales call. Yeah. And then sadly, unfortunately, he passed and suddenly she found herself on the first sales call ever. So if there's a particular area, whether it's marketing, operations, finance, or sales, whatever it is, go for that first. <laughs> and, and implicit in what you've just said is the notion, and I completely agree with it, that some of these areas can seem like a mystery or area of deep, <laughs> impenetrable knowledge, or you have to have 
um, unique uh, <laughs> skill set or intelligence. But I think from Nicole, uh, I'm left with the notion that we really just have to take charge and get everything done if suddenly we are required to do everything and not be shy about right. picking up topics and expertises mm-hmm. we thought were uh, way, beyond us, uh, way beyond us or way above us. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. In fact, she even added that her husband, upon acquiring a new factory and equipment, began to read <laughs> the yeah. manuals, the operation manuals on how to actually work this equipment. Wasn't that good? So, yeah. you know, she used the word micromanage. I think what she meant was really under, you know, go in there, understand the details of the business, how how it really works. So when you're in a situation of leading, you understand where your people are where they're coming from. And Anna reinforces what we've heard from so many people on this program, and that is nobody starts out as a born entrepreneur or the leader of a community group or a hospital administrator. We have to learn it. And the best teacher or the best instructor is actually ourself in forcing ourselves to get out of our knowledge zone into these new areas, even if they look a little bit complex. <laughs> right. Well, and uh, maybe back to Patty for a minute. I was really interested in her early experience as a recruiter and thinking about talent in such a positive way that there's an abundance of talent. And now, Mike, you know we're on the heels of the Super Bowl here and, of course, concerned about the loss of coaches or the loss of players. You know, Nick Foles is supposed to be back. Will he be back? But maybe the Eagles organization could also take that abundant view of talent and not be too worried about what we're going to lose, but maybe more focused on what we might gain. And then I think the Netflix story picking up (laughs) on that is you want a lot of great people around you, and then it's all about the culture. We often hear that. We have a nice illustration of it tonight. Got to code it. Got to write it down. Got to put it out there. Got to help people understand it. But uh, good people, good culture. I think uh, we've got a future. <laughs> yes. So, and I think that is about it. It's wanna, a wrap. It's a wrap. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for joining us. So we had a couple of great guests tonight. Lots of insights. If you've got a question about our show, you can reach us business radio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us, of course, on Twitter at BizRadio111. Special thanks here, first of all, to our guests, of course, Nicole Bernard-Dawes and Patty McCord. want to thank our outstanding producer, Patty Hall, and our excellent sound engineer, Tatiana Zamiz. I'm Mike Yusim. You have been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.